0: Welcome to Behind the Curtain, L.A. Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. In this podcast, musicologist Dr. Mitchell Morris continues our Exploring the Canon podcast series with a discussion of Spanish composer Manuel de Falla and his work El Retablo del Maese Pedro, a puppet opera based on Don Quixote by Miguel de Cervantes. This recording was created as part of LA Opera Connect's professional development series for teachers, Opera for Educators, in celebration of the premiere of The Three Women of Jerusalem, or Las Tres Mujeres de Jerusalén, a new Spanish-language opera by composer and librettist Carla Lucero. This production will premiere at Cathedral of Our Lady of the Angels
1: on March 19, 2022. I am delighted to have a chance to talk about a piece that I've known for many, many years and rarely have a chance to comment on. The question of Spanish opera is a really interesting question. First of all, um, Spain was like England in that in the 16th century, Spain had a glorious and spectacular tradition of spoken theater, just as English did. Um, It's been suggested by some, um, I don't really know how I stand on this, that the theatrical traditions in Spain and England were so strong that native opera never had much of a foothold. And it is certainly true in England, for instance, that you get a lot of pieces that are not opera the way we understand it in Italy, just as in Spain. You get a lot of pieces that are not opera in that sense. What you get instead in England, for instance, with Henry Purcell, you get a group of pieces called semi-operas. We call them semi-operas because they are in many ways like 17th and 18th century versions of what we will later call musicals or operetta and in the same way we have the antique zarzuela which will lead to a 19th century style zarzuela which is this very powerful form of native operetta as well so That's what opera mostly consists of in Spain. Um, It's powerful enough that it actually takes root in Spanish colonies. There's a particularly noticeably strong presence in the Philippines, for instance. And so Zarzuela becomes really the sound of popular Spanish theatrical entertainment. That's its primary goal. But you say, well, what about opera?" opera? in Spanish languages is really similar to opera in English languages in that it is particularly a 20th century phenomenon. And it's not necessarily something that grows up as part of a vernacular. It's not like Sarsuela. It's not like musicals or Tin Pan Alley or anything like that. Um, They are very self-conscious works. And one of the first of these, and one of the most interesting of these, is a little piece. It is only 30 minutes long, written by the Spanish composer Manuel de Falla in the early 20th century. A wonderful piece called El Retablo de Maese Pedro, which is an opera, well, it's really complicated. It is a puppet opera in which A group of puppets are watching a puppet opera, if you will. So it's an opera within an opera, but everyone is puppets. Now, as to how we get such a peculiar thing in really early 20th century Spanish opera, we get it because of the structure of patronage and what's going on with modernism in the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th. So oddly enough, to talk about Spanish opera, we must go to Paris, everyone. Went to Paris. And Faya, like many, many other composers of his generation, spent some time there. He spent time there not only because it was really the happening city musically, it was a very, very exciting place. Uh, famously, the critic Walter Benjamin had referred to Paris as he called it the capital of the 19th century. And It was culturally of enormous power, particularly in the 1900s and the 1910s and the early 1920s. That was a time when it was particularly exciting. The late part of the so-called French Third Republic, Um, tremendous, tremendous artistic ferment. Part of it was the result of a lot of people who were exiled from troubles at home because of revolutions. and World War I. Lots of Russians end up in in Paris. People connected with Diaghiles Ballet Russe. Random American performers and rich people and the idle upper classes go to Paris quite a bit. And there are homegrown people who have lots and lots of money. Um, The economist Thomas Piketty has pointed out that the only reason that there is a real thriving middle class in the middle of the 20th century is World War II wiped out the fortunes of most of the serious aristocrats who had a lock on money, but not everybody. This was an important place, and this is where you find various figures out of Henry James or Edith Wharton. You get typically large numbers of American heiresses going to France or to England to make expensive aristocratic matches. Uh, You get a lot of that kind of travel going on, and one of the most famous instances of it is the wonderful cultural figure, the Princess de Polignac. The Princess de Polignac was born Winneretta Singer, the last of Isaac Singer's children, the youngest, and heiress to the Singer sewing machine fortune. So she had loads of cash. And it was used to make a mariage blanc with uh, with the Prince de Polignac Now the prince and the princess neither one were particularly interested in heterosexual relationships. So they were perfectly happy to run their separate lives side by side, the prince with his boys and the Princess de Polignac with you know a sort of dazzling, Very open kind of household where she commissioned huge numbers of important modernist works. She was patroness to people like Debussy quite regularly. And it was because of her that Faya comes to write the opera in question. She wanted him to write an opera because she had a personal puppet theater. And she requested a short piece that she could have performed in her own salon for her puppet theater. So that actually helps shape the choice of material. And it helps shape the musical tastes and the musical references and the shape of the piece. As I say, El Retablo de Maese Pedro is about 30 minutes long. It stars very few people. You have someone playing Don Quixote, who is on the sidelines watching. And you have a boy, who is the apprentice of Maese Pedro, who is the puppet master. This is often sung by a mezzo-soprano because it's a hard part for a kid. It requires a vast amount of memorization. Musically, in terms of vocal skill, it's not necessarily technically super hard it doesn't have elaborate coloratura or anything like that but what it does have is the ability to recite because faya had been interested in the regional musics of Spain, particularly Andalusia had been an important part of his background. And he had done a lot of work with deliberately trying to evoke Andalusian musical tropes and styles and things like that. In this piece, he surrendered that. Instead of trying to get some kind of Spanish regional style, like an Andalusian sort of sound or working with Catalonian things, what he decided to do was he went for the Renaissance. Now, this is really, really common in this particular kind of modernism, the modernism that we might associate with Debussy, with Ravel, with a number of French and Spanish composers. What they're trying to do to be modern is they're choosing to be antique. They're choosing old forms. They're taking old musical languages and spiking them up in certain ways. You can think of Stravinsky as another one like this. When Stravinsky, we often refer to this kind of writing as so-called neoclassical. Now that's a term that I prefer to avoid because neoclassical means at least four things that I can think of off the top of my head. And I want to sort of keep them separate a little bit, but this interest in old music is very important in this period. So what Faya is doing is he is taking 16th century styles because the Quixote is a 16th century, a 17th century book. So he's taking music, he's actually quoting Spanish sources uh, from the 16th and 17th century, and he's sort of folding it into a kind of neo-Baroque, neo-Renaissance kind of style. He's taking advantage of a lot of traditions in Spain. Um, There's a particular reciting tradition for public announcements. Um, That's the recitation that the boy will use. Um, He will be doing a lot of... Stuff that will sound at first like it's some kind of plain chant. It's not actually the kind of chant you would hear in a church service. What it is, is a kind of proclamation chant, which really gets back to the main purpose of a lot of chant. The reason so many things in the world are chanted, whether they're religious texts or not, is because it's much easier to hear sung language than spoken language. Uh, There are plenty of instances where you want to sing it because you want everybody in this space to hear it. And if you sing it, they will hear it a lot better than if it's spoken. Spoken languages only really work in large spaces if the space is designed to have virtually no reverb whatsoever. With reverb, you need to sing it. So that's really one of the ways that's structuring this entire piece. Now, within this, a lot of really, really witty, clever kinds of fun goes on because this is a charming piece. It's meant to be funny. It's meant to be beguiling. Its whole purpose is a kind of light diversion. So the story is a little kind of antique story involving Charlemagne and various old figures from the past. It reminds me personally of nothing so much as Proust's little account in the first volume of the In Search of Lost Time, where he's a kid and he has a magic lantern in his room with various old sort of story characters like uh, Melisande and uh, Peleus and Golo and people like that. Um, The same kind of thing is really the principle here. You're going to hear vague stories about moors and knights and ladies in distress and so on and so on. So the story itself is a very, very conventional kind of medieval-esque romance. Where it's good is Maese Pedro keeps giving the boy instructions while they're trying to do the show. So it's at once a kind of backstage musical, but it's on stage. And you have an onstage audience as well. Uh, Now, ideally, in Faya's conception, you'd therefore have two layers of puppets. You've got the puppets in the story, and the puppets who are watching the story who are the real story. Because of course, it's a Don Quixote story. What always happens with Don Quixote is he is incapable of restraining himself. He will always jump into crazy Don Quixote fantasy land and cause trouble. And that is what happens here. He is overcome by the story and disrupts everything because he's got all sorts of things to say about being a knight and how it's really important. And my Dulcinea, this is why I'm killing the Moors, etc., etc. And everybody is consternated because what is this man doing? We're just watching a play and suddenly he's disrupting everything from the audience and so it's that kind of set of clever sort of notions about audience versus performers about on stage versus backstage about using old things and making them very very new we're going to listen to a lot of this because no one tends to have heard it this to me is the kind of thing i've got to say When I was thinking about this, I was thinking, this is a piece I would love to use in a class. I may actually spend a good 15 minutes here giving you a thorough sample of this piece, because I doubt that anybody has heard it, and it's wonderful, and I'm like a real advocate of this.
0: Vengan a ver vuesas mercedes el retablo de la libertad de Merisenda, que es una de las cosas más de ver que hay en el mundo.
1: I want to talk for just a moment about what we're hearing. There are several points that I would want to make. One is it's a very, very spiky sort of arrangement. We are not talking about the sort of thing that I've talked about a million times in here that we call tonality. There are certainly places that are home base, places that we can sort of rest. But we're not using Do-Re-Mi, Julie Andrews style harmonies anymore. It's much, much spikier. If it reminds you of anything, it might remind you of some of Stravinsky's works in the 20s, like Pulcinella or pieces like that, because they're actually these composers are all aiming at a kind of musical common coin. Also, I want to stress that it's a really interesting situation we've got here where everybody can clearly tell that Don Quixote is having a little trouble restraining himself. He tends to get lost and lose whether he's looking at a reality or it's just a play. And I think part of that is signaled by the way that we've actually got puppets, but we also have people dressed as puppets in the ballet so we're slipping back and forth between real and marionette between real um, on stage and not on stage a lot of different layers of fiction are being played with Uh, you see the boy that's an amazing kid that's really an amazing kid has a lot of work to do that's hard memory work that he's doing and he's doing a just bang up job of it also just let me point out that the set designer has been and costumer have been really really smart because the setting particularly of the human audience looks like spanish baroque painting some of those paintings could come right out of a, of a modio or something like that. And so they've been really attentive to period style as a way of framing all of this. It makes it very, very effective.
0: No te metas en dibujos, sino haz lo que ese señor te manda. Sigue tu canto llano y no te metas en contrapuntos que se suelen quebrar de sotiles. Yo así lo haré. Adelante.
1: There are a couple of things that I think are worth mentioning here. Yes, we do have the old stereotype that does, in fact, date back to the Middle Ages of the lecherous Moor, who is seeking a lady so that he can steal a kiss from her. You will recognize it from more recent pieces. There's obviously a kind of allusion to Monostatos and Pamina from The Magic Flute. There is also more than a little bit of a resonance to the other great theatrical entertainment of this period that shows puppets, and that, of course, is Stravinsky's Petrushka. One of the characters is called the Arab, the Moor, the Arab. So, in fact, you still have that stereotype. It's essentially, I'm sorry to say, kind of a gollywog stereotype. It's very, very similar to things, you know, at its worst, it's going to end up in DW. Griffith's Birth of a Nation. It's going to show up, uh, you know, related to blackface and all kinds of other things. It is a part of that culture to use the forms of black men, particularly, as a kind of sexual threat. And that's what we were dealing with, although interestingly, um, the lecherous Moor was caught by other Moors and punished for his presumption. Notice that Don Quixote is already getting really, really invested in this, in fact. But I just want to make a few more points as I sort of head towards closing here. One is that it's a really striking and interesting piece because it's so self-aware. It's so concerned about the layers of what fiction is and what reality is. And it really plays very hard with that. Possibly inevitable with a figure like Don Quixote, because part of Cervantes's point is Don Quixote's inability to keep reality and the fantasies of his books separate. He wants to merge them, which is precisely his problem. Uh, This dramatizes that. This makes it really, really quite concrete. He is a distinguished man, after all, and everybody's bowing to him and giving him deference. But they all recognize that he's kind of dangerous that he suddenly disrupts the play by giving the boy instructions for instance so part of the game of Maese Pedro is going to have to be getting things back on track giving the boy instruction and hoping that things will stay together which of course they will not. This opera will end with Don Quixote being overwhelmed by his fantasy world and suddenly laying about him and making a complete shambles of everything because he's determined to prove how useful and valiant knights really can be. So it's actually, it's a marvelous, marvelous piece as far as these things go. So there are a lot of real virtues to this piece, a lot of interesting things to say. The other question about racial representation is it's deliberately quite naive. It's very, very much the kind of, uh, I don't want to say xenophobia precisely, but it's the kind of, of parochialism that finds everybody strange who is not from where you are that might moderate it, certainly if you're teaching it, you're going to want to talk about it. This will be a sort of an issue to address with students. It wouldn't have been thought twice about when Faya was writing it. Uh, This would have been understood really connected to Mozart or Stravinsky in this kind of way. And the resonances of the character in real social terms would have been just beside the point for them. That's not true for us, and it's part of what updates and revisions of the opera are ultimately about. So I encourage you to look at several other productions that are available online. The visual layout is an important part of making this opera work because you've got this puppet question and you want to know how you're going to manage it. It repays a lot of study from the point of view of theater craft as well as music.
0: I had a, a question, um, Dr. Morris, as we're listening to these pieces with my limited background in, in music You know, I'm used to hearing certain kinds of compositions and and I think, you know, your ear gets trained that way. What should I be listening for, you know, as a lay person that would really, you know, clue me into this kind of style of music?
1: I was talking a while back to a graduate student in cinema studies, and we were talking about how students are at reading films. And I said, well, you know, it frustrates me because I hope for a little more fluency, but I don't really know how to teach that. And the student agreed with me that basically the only way to teach people to read films is have them watch a lot of films. (laughs) And there's a sense in which the best way of appreciating this is listen to a lot of music. I'll give you a list. Hang on. It's tricky. What you will hear will be things that sound familiar on one level, you'll often hear melodies that sound very familiar that there are melodies in here that are 16th century tunes, but you will also hear the harmony get really spiky. It will do odd things. It'll sound like it's in more than one key at times. It'll be bumpy very much on purpose. one way to think of it is we're taking older styles and we're adding bitters to make them more astringent. So expect that it will always be familiar, but not. It's deliberately set up to give you this, you know, this extra sort of intensity. And it usually helps, believe it or not, not to try to break it down too far. Notice the instruments that are playing, notice the sort of rhythmic patterns. Whenever you hear something that sounds like a dance, it probably is. Whenever you hear something that sounds like an old aria, it probably is. It may be repurposed, but it's probably using those old forms. If it sounds like Bach, they meant to do that. So all of your historical senses, if you think it sounds like something, yes, it does. So historical reference is a good place when you recognize something or say, oh, this reminds me of that. That's a really good way to listen. Um, listening to it a number of times, you, it starts to stick. Little bits of it start to stick. I like to think of listening as it's based around pillars, at least from in my experience. I listen to a piece, and maybe I'll remember one or two moments. I'll be like, oh, yeah, I remember that place where, oh, that was so great. I'll listen to it again. I'll remember a couple more moments. And after a few listens, I'll remember whole sections of the piece. But it requires that repeated listening in order to start sticking. Basically, in the 20th century, most of the time, pieces start out by teaching you how to listen to them. They sort of signal, this is going to matter here. And once you get used to that, then you'll know how to follow it. But it requires repeated listenings. This is very different from most music beforehand. You know, like especially 18th century music, the whole point of it is you're supposed to be able to hear it and instantly understand it. And if you didn't do that, they would say, well, you really messed that up because that was absolutely a central value. In the 20th century, it's a library kind of mentality. You know, hear it multiple times.
0: Having very limited Spanish, could you summarize what the boy was singing about?
1: Well, that's actually really funny, too. He's basically telling you what you're about to see (laughs) every time. He's saying, well, in this scene, you are going to see Melisandre crying, and then a lecherous moor will sneak up and kiss her you're like okay well we know that already um this is a trick that was possible in the 20s particularly there's this piece and then there's stravinsky's oedipus rex which is a wonderful piece but every scene of that beforehand has somebody telling you what you're about to see so you never have an opportunity. i mean it's oedipus so like it's not like you're going to be surprised anyway this is not news to anybody in Western culture, but they tell you anyway that you're going to see this thing happening. And so you don't have a chance not to know. It's like, okay, here we go. Well, I know this part. <laughs> and there's something, uh, this this is like a parody version of that, because if you ever wanted a cliffhanger, you don't want this kid standing there telling you what you're about to see. <laughs> So that's mostly what he's doing. He's like doing his part. You know, he's an apprentice boy in the theater. So he's telling you what you're about to see and doing a few little flourishes and trying to get you to feel a little bit and like telling Maise Pedro, yes, I'll do it right this time. Uh, So that's essentially what's happening. All y'all listen to this piece. Listen to this piece. It's 30 minutes that will absolutely repay the time. It's a wonderful, wonderful work. And it's so smart and so witty.
0: You've been listening to LA Operas Behind the Curtain. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on Apple iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Remember to share with your friends on your favorite social media, and we'll see you at the opera.